Good evening, this is Rob McClure and Vicki Iden bringing you your local news live from the WORT studios on Bedford Street in downtown Madison. Here are tonight's headlines. Voters with disabilities will be able to get help in delivering or mailing their ballots according to new rules approved by the Wisconsin Elections Commission, according to a story filed by the Associated Press. The new so-called guidance to local election officials came into effect due to an order by a federal judge. The order of the federal judge ruled last week that disabled voters must have the right to assistance when delivering their ballot. Under the rule, disabled voters may receive assistance from anyone other than the voter's employer or officer or agent of the voter's union. Also, clerks do not need to confirm a person's disability or the identity of the voter or their assistant to accept the ballot. Also, courtesy of the Associated Press, a Milwaukee County judge ruled today that election clerks are not allowed to fill in mailing information on absentee ballots. The practice, known as ballot curing, used to allow clerks to fill in information on witness certification envelopes for absentee ballots that were missing important but obvious information, such as zip codes. Instead, the judge ruled that clerks can only return the ballots to the voters for them to correct the information, or the vote cannot be counted. The ruling came just months before the November election, and the judge has immediately blocked the practice. An attorney representing the Democratic Party of Waukesha County, who defended ballot curing in the case, says they plan to file a motion to stay the ruling pending an appeal. Meanwhile, the case is expected to wind up before the state Supreme Court. Madison Alder Gary Halverson has been identified on the membership roles of the far-right extremist group The Oath Keepers, which played a key role in the insurrection of January 6th, reports the Wisconsin State Journal. The report released today by the Anti-Defamation League named hundreds of elected officials, law enforcement, and military members appearing on the leaked membership rolls, which total 38,000. Halverson, the 17th District Alder, said that he joined the group in May 2020 because he saw it as a, quote, organization that welcomed veterans who cared about our democracy, end quote. Uh, But he decided later decided that he had been misled and terminated the membership three months later. In addition to Halverson, elected officials in Rock County, Two Rivers, and a handful of other communities were also identified. Also, four members of law enforcement agencies were also identified. Overall, 609 Wisconsin residents were identified as members of the Oath Keepers. Madison and Dane County's Rental and Utility Assistance, a program called DaneCorps 2.0, will end on September the 15th because the program has used all of its federal and local funds. Over the last year, renters have received more than $40 million to help pay rent and utility bills, and the program has helped more than 6,000 households since September of last year. Last night, a resolution was introduced at the Madison Common Council meeting to accept $608,000 from the federal government to pay out claims made before the closing date of September 15th. An equity and access evaluation of the Henry Vilas Zoo has been released, outlining nine ways the zoo can better represent everyone in the Madison community. The report first first started last December and finished up last month. It is not to be confused with the investigation into allegations of racism and retaliation in zoo management, which began last month. 
The report found multiple ways the zoo could be more equitable to the Madison community, including offering signage in multiple languages, improving the experience for zoo visitors with disabilities, and strengthening inclusion for the LGBT community, LGBTQ community. The report will be presented to the Henry Vilas Zoo Commission and the County Parks Commission in the coming weeks. And staying within the friendly confines of Henry Vilas, another moment. The zoo reports that Ty the Red Panda has died at the age of 14 from bone cancer. Ty had been at the zoo since 2012 and was diagnosed last month. After Ty's condition did not improve with chemotherapy, the zoo made the decision to humanely euthanize her. Over 100 individuals on Facebook sent their regrets to Ty's caretakers at the zoo. Those were the headlines, and now on to the rest of the day's top stories. After over a year of revisions, the Madison Common Council finally approved the rezoning and redevelopment of Ramish Farms last night. While some are happy to see new developments come to the north side, others are concerned about the larger implications of paving farmlands next to the airport to build single-family homes. WORT producer Nate Wegehaupt has more. The Ramish Farm is a 65-acre area of farmland bordering Sherman and Packers Avenue. Green Street Development, the St. Louis-based development company working on that property, is looking to build 76 market-rate homes and six apartment buildings there, removing all but eight acres of farmland in the process. Three and a half acres on the property would be saved for parkland and open space. Last night, the project to redevelop Ramish Farm went before the Common Council for the third time. In August of last year, the council overwhelmingly denied the project, which they did again back in February. Since then, the plan has undergone considerable change, making the home plot smaller, adding more parkland along Sherman Avenue, and eliminating homes to add more farmable land. And after nearly three hours of public comment and discussion, the third time appeared to be the charm. The rezoning and development passed in a 15-3 to vote. Critics have been vocal about the project, naming concerns associated with the incoming bed-down of F-35 jets that will be housed at the nearby Truax airfield next year. The site sits next to the Dane County Airport and is projected to be one of the areas most affected by noise from the F-35s. Shelley Johnson, who spoke at last night's meeting and lives in the same district as Ramish Farm, says that the noise from those jets will put those living in the new neighborhood at risk. These houses are a trap for those who live there. For anyone who purchases a home on the property, you're putting them at a financial risk of purchasing something which will never get its value back. They will be stuck living in an unsafe environment. There's no way to soundproof a house completely to protect people. Even if there was, you would be a prisoner in your own house because you certainly wouldn't be able to go outside and enjoy being in your yard with the sounds of the plane. Steve Klofka with Safe Skies Clean Water agrees, saying that he is disappointed that the city is willing to place new housing next to the airport before figuring out exactly how the noise will affect those living nearby. It seems like they just haven't gotten around to putting their foot down and saying no development around the airport. Developers keep on coming back and kind of have to piecemeal look at developments and oppose them. You know, it seems like, uh, you know, the city has forgotten what it told the Air Force. 
and now it's letting these projects squeak through. Joel Oliver with Green Street says that while he is not concerned about the noise, they still decided to implement noise mitigation into the houses. Um, so there's a lot of things that make a lot of noise, right? We want to provide a product that, that is marketable. So we went above and beyond to, um, in that letter, say that on the eastern facing sides of the multifamily building, so that's facing the airport, um, it would have additional construction methods to provide more soundproofing. That could be through different styles of windows, patio doors, uh, different techniques for the installation of insulation. Um, those are kind of the typical things that you would do. But for some, the issue with Ramish Farms redevelopment comes from the houses themselves. Michelle Ellinger Lindley with the Ramish Farm Work Group says that she's most disappointed in the affordability of the neighborhood. These single-family homes built on the site will be sold at market value. According to Zillow, homes for sale about a mile away near the Cherokee Marsh range from $265,000 on the low end to almost a million dollars on the high end. District 13 Alder Tag Evers says that he agrees with those concerns, which is why he voted against the rezoning last night. And it's very unlikely that, you know, folks with more modest incomes, whether teachers or first responders, or, would be able to afford these homes. And so um, while we need more housing at all different price levels, I felt like the opportunity presented here was not sufficiently strong to warrant paving over this farmland. Ever says that if the plan removed these single-family housing and focused instead on apartments, he would have been more supportive of the plan. Evers listed another concern with the project, turning farmable land into paving. He says the development removes another opportunity to grow food and be less reliant on grocery stores, especially given supply chain disruptions over the last years. Lori Lee is the chair of the Northside Planning Council, a nonprofit community group focusing on overseeing the well-being of the community through racial and economic equity. She says that the eight areas of farmable land on Ramish Farm is larger than what is already available in the area. If you have to compare it to what else is on the north side, um, we are the home for uh, Troy Community Gardens and the Troy Farm. And the Troy Farm has eight acres or six acres. So it's bigger than Troy Farms that has been there for mm, probably, you know, at least 25 years. District 18 Alder Charles Miadze, who represents the area containing Ramish Farm, has been a longtime proponent of the rezoning. At last night's meeting, Miadze gave an impassioned plea to get the council to approve the rezoning, saying that owning a home has been one of the best things to happen in his life and wants that to come to underrepresented people on the city's north side. How many Charles Miadze's are they on the north side corridor that want a chance to own a house? And when we talk about home ownership, generational wealth that I can hand to my own kids, that is so, so, so important. Mayor Satya Rhodes-Conway agrees, saying the development will bring needed housing as the city continues to grow. As you know, housing is uh, one of my top priorities uh, here in Madison. We need to create a minimum of 4,000 units of housing today and then add another 1,000 to 2,000 a year going forward just to keep up with the population growth that we've experienced and that we're projected to experience. And, you know, that's not going to 
um, necessarily reduce the rents that we're seeing, but it will keep them from going up. Joel Oliver with Green Street says that now that the area has been rezoned, a better idea of what the homes in the redeveloped Ramish Farms will look like and their prices will be decided in the spring of next year. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Nate Wuggiehout. States like Wisconsin have embraced managed grazing as part of regenerative agriculture, but federal funding to provide technical assistance to farmers hasn't been around for the past decade. Now appropriations have been restored, and regional ag leaders hope Wisconsin groups can get some of that aid. Here's Mike Mullen of the Wisconsin News Connection. Managed grazing is one of several ways farmers can implement climate-friendly practices. And after a lengthy absence, a key source of federal aid has been restored. Wisconsin groups that want to help face a deadline to apply. Late this summer, the USDA announced up to $12 million to be shared by groups that provide technical assistance for farmers considering managed grazing. Laura Payne is with a University of Wisconsin-Madison-based project called Grassland 2.0. She says managed grazing primarily relies on pasture forage for livestock. It works because it reduces your costs because the animals are going out and harvesting their own feed and spreading their own manure. It's very adaptable and you can use it as much or as little as fits with your system. Experts say it also protects water quality, improves soil health, and provides good habitat for pollinators and wildlife. The application deadline for funds is September 22nd. Eligible groups include farm organizations, conservation agencies, and tribal governments. Program funding was cut more than a decade ago, and even though it's been restored, the amount is far less than what supporters requested. Payne says that should serve as a reminder for anyone interested to apply as soon as possible. She notes there will be a lot of national competition for these funds and hopes the process inspires a lot of innovation. As we shift from generation to generation, we need to always be thinking of, you know, adding some new approaches to reaching audiences and the farmer population has changed. She says there are younger producers coming on board who didn't inherit a family operation. Payne, who also was a farmer, used to manage the Grazing Lands Conservation Initiative in Wisconsin and knows firsthand the program's effectiveness. She says it adds to the important work being done here. Wisconsin has historically had this great combination of state agencies and educational institutions and nonprofits working together to provide this combination of technical assistance and education. The USDA says project proposals for GLCI cooperative agreements should identify and address barriers to getting grazing assistance to reach more historically underserved producers. Wisconsin's Michael Fields Agricultural Institute led a broad coalition in urging Congress to bring back the program funding. Mike Moen, Wisconsin News Connection. Find our rate trust indicators to support transparency and accuracy at publicnewsservice.org. The time is now 619 and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. Back in April of 2020, voters were asked to decide on an amendment of the state's constitution that said it would expand the rights of alleged victims of crime. 
Marcy's law, as it was known, passed, but a group of Wisconsin lawyers say that the question was worded in a way that misled voters into approving the amendment. Their case was heard before the state Supreme Court yesterday, and the case could determine how ballot questions are written in the future. Margot Kirshner is the executive director of Wisconsin Justice Initiative, the progressive advocacy group that brought the case to court. Kirshner spoke with WORT producer Nate Weggehaupt yesterday after it was heard before the state's top court to learn more about the question that gave her concern. A reminder that this interview and the oral arguments for the case took place yesterday. So, Margot, just to start things off here, why don't you just give us some background on this case? What is Marcy's Law and what are some of your issues with it? Um, Marcy's Law is the Victims' Rights Amendment that was proposed to the voters in the April 2020 election. So um, it was you know, a proposed amendment to change the language in uh, our, con- our state constitution, and it was presented to voters as a an expansion of crime, of crime victims' rights. And, um, and we kept hearing, once the legislature had passed the language, we at uh, WJI had heard from defense attorneys that uh, the proposed amendment, amendment was going to cause some problems regarding the rights of criminal defendants. Um, but we did not hear about anybody trying to challenge the language or doing much about the complaints that we heard. Um, and we didn't hear about anybody preparing to challenge the ballot question. And our, um, what we see as problems with the amendment, we're, we're not against victims' rights. Um, and, but what we see with the amendment is that the language not only expands crime victims' rights, it also diminishes criminal defendants' rights. So we used to have, uh, before this amendment, we used to have language in the state constitution that said um, in no way uh, would crime victims' rights um, supersede or diminish or affect in any way an accused's rights. That language was taken out by the Marcy's Law Amendment. So there's this shift in balance between the prior language in our constitution that had victims' rights in it, but it balanced them against a, an accused's rights and said that in the event of any conflict, the rights of a, an accused would not be diminished. And with that language being taken out and the other language in the amendment, the amendment now favors victims uh, of uh, alleged victims of crimes because there has been no conviction yet. So they're alleged victims of crimes and it favors them to the detriment of criminal defendants or those accused of crime. And that was not presented to the voters. Our, bi- our, our big uh, issue in this case is that the voters were not told that the expansion of criminal uh, victims' rights was going to be at the expense of accused's rights and that that balance was being shifted dramatically. It was not now going to favor an accused if there was a conflict, but now it was going to uh, favor the victims when there's a conflict. All the while, the voters were being told that victims' rights were being brought just up to the level of a defendant's or an accused's rights. Um, so the, the voters were being told that we're just raising the, the, the level of victims' rights, but we're not going to exceed a defendant's rights. But the actual language of the amendment that was being passed, in fact, creates victims' rights at a higher level than a defendant's rights or an accused's rights. 
So that those are our, our issues with the amendments. That our case is about the ballot question and whether voters were fully and fairly informed and not misled about the contents of the actual amendments when they read a ballot a short ballot question, um, you know, at the at the voting booth or for that particular election in the absentee ballots because many many people voted absentee but but the case does not does not rely on that it's about the the information given to the voters the in the question about what they were passing and the fact that voters were not fully in, being fully informed by the question and that the they were in fact being misled certain language we argue was misleading and diverted voters away from thinking that uh, an accused's rights were being diminished. And I think one of our other arguments is that that, it, that you could diminish a defendant's rights in addition to expanding crime victims' rights, but you had to have two questions to do it. P- voters should have been able to, to choose whether they were going to allow that diminishment of an accused's rights. And they were not informed by that at all. But they should have been asked whether they wanted to uh, to do both. So those are our, those are our main arguments um, and our main problems with the Marcy's Law Amendments is that the the voters were not told what exactly was not not just what exactly was in the amendments, but even um, a glimpse of exactly how the amendments were going to affect the rights of an, someone accused of crime. Going into a little bit what happened here today, uh, obviously there are oral arguments for this case before the state Supreme Court. Uh, so what what are you sort of calling for in this case? What was argued at today's oral arguments? Um, the, the arguments today were about, um, you know, the, the law behind uh, ballot questions. So there's language in the state constitution um, that talks about how Amendments have to be proposed by the legislature and passed at two separate legislative sessions, and then they go to the voters. And a lot of the focus um, for argument was about what voters need to be told, what the prior case law has been. There have been very few cases, and they're they're pretty old. They go back to like the 1920s and through the last century, you know, a handful of cases on amending uh, amending the Constitution. And a lot of the the questions today and the uh, argument talked about the um, discretion given to the legislature. And so so the legislature gets to propose how the ballot question is presented to the voters. And our argument is that there has to be some outer bounds on that. The legislature cannot broadly um, mis- like mislead the public or not fully inform the public of what the ballot ballot question means regarding the amendments there has to be some outer limit on the discretion given to the legislature they can't just propose um any old question they have to propose a question that gives the essential elements to the voters and does not mislead them so there has there there's broad discretion on the part of the legislature um under the law but there has to be some limit to it because the voters are involved in the amendment process by the Constitution, it's the legislature, then with a vote by the people. And if the people don't know what they're voting on because the legislature has formulated the question in a way that does not tell the voters you know, what they are really passing, that is a problem under the, the state constitution and how we pass constitutional amendments. 
I've been talking with Margot Kirchner, executive director with the Wisconsin Justice Initiative, about the case surrounding the legality of the Marcy's Law ballot question that went before voters in 2020. That case went before the state Supreme Court for oral, oral arguments earlier today. Margot, thank you so much for coming on and talking with me. Thank you very much, Nate. The time is now 6.32, and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. I'm your host, Robert McClure, here with my co-host, Vicki Iden. Thanks for staying with us. In 1912, the people of Mount Horeb constructed a dam, creating a lake that would later be the center of the first Dane County Park. 110 years later, Stewart Lake Park still provides a wide variety of recreational opportunities. In this week's Parks and Landmarks, feature contributor Sean Bull heads to Stewart Lake to find out what makes the park so special. You're listening to Parks and Landmarks, an exploration of the underrated outdoors. I'm Sean Bull. Mount Horeb, Wisconsin is one of Madison's more interesting satellite communities. Because of its lead mining ties, it's the oldest continuous white settlement in Dane County, depending on when Blue Mounds started to count as a real town. After Madison became the official center of Wisconsin, Mount Horeb settled into the role of gateway to the territory's southwest. That role suited the village just fine for nearly a century and a half, until it came time to upgrade and reroute U.S. Highway 151. The highway connecting Madison to Mineral Point, Platteville, and beyond, which had previously gone straight through town, now bypassed it to the south. This led to a predictable decline in business, and Mount Horeb has since tried, with varied success, all sorts of things to lure people back into town. If you've lived a while in Madison and have only vaguely heard of the village to its southwest, you've probably heard tell of Mount Horeb's trolls. All along its main street sit wooden carvings of squat fairy tale creatures, each unique, but unified through short stature, bulbous noses, and big feet. The village has long embraced its Norwegian heritage, but the Trollway is a direct response to the change brought by the bypass. Over the past few decades, Mount Horeb has built an image that leans into its separation from Madison. It's charming and an easy place to get away from life in the city. The thing is, it had those elements in it all along. Before the trolls, before the microbrewery, before the Military Ridge bike trail, Mount Horeb already had the best park in Dane County. Stewart Lake is a county park on the north end of the village of Mount Horeb. It has existed in some form for the past 110 years, making it the first ever park run by Dane County. The park's lake namesake is artificial. Moen Creek happens to spring from the ground in a spot where the topography of Wisconsin's Driftless region really gets going. On the north end of Mount Horeb, there are ridges and valleys all over the place. Moen Creek starts in a narrowish valley, so it was easy for people in 1912 to construct a dam and turn it into a six-acre lake. None of the engineering involved was particularly impressive. The lake isn't huge, and it only gets 12 feet deep at the most. 
Still, it's plenty big to swim, paddle, or fish, and its builders picked a beautiful spot to put it. I think it's partly the variety that's appealing. The lake is surrounded on two sides by tall evergreens, cedar, and pines. Outcroppings of sandstone make the lake's edges feel more natural. Up the valley, the creek flows into the lake through a marsh, and 200 feet up, on top of the ridge, sits an oak savanna. Miles of trails connect the habitats together, and you could walk without covering the same ground for hours. Unsurprisingly to anyone who's listened to my bike episodes, my favorite walk here is a rough loop around the lake's perimeter. After crossing the earthen dam which keeps the lake in place, you find yourself under a canopy of cedar. A bigger park might construct a boardwalk over this terrain to smooth the bumps and divots of rocks and giant roots. But not Stewart Lake. The far side of the lake is not for those with weak knees or ankles. In many parts, there is only the suggestion of a trail, formed by the absence of undergrowth plants, rather than the guidance of signposts. But despite some ambiguity, you are supposed to explore out here. Almost exactly opposite, across the lake from the main parking lot, a small picnic site sits beneath the trees. It's basically just a table and a trash can, but it's also an invitation from the park to sit and stay a while. You can watch people as they fish off the dam and paddle around the small cliffs. I don't think it's technically allowed, but the rocky base makes this a pretty safe space to start a small fire. There are few better moments than being huddled around a fire, watching the sun set over the pines in the lake, as the first cool breeze of fall sweeps down the valley. But that's just one way to enjoy the park, a tiny slice of its 191 acres. The first iteration of the Moen Creek Dam, all the way back in the 19th century, aimed to create a swimming hole for the locals. Now, every summer, people come from miles around for that same purpose. The main parking lot holds about 50 cars and slopes gently down through a grassy lawn to a beach, which is about a 50-foot square. The sand here is as artificial as the rest of the lake, trucked in from parts unknown, but it's piled deep enough that you wouldn't notice. And maybe there's something too defying nature, as Stewart Lake provides a consistently better swimming experience than the natural sandy beaches of Lake Monona. Most every summer, there comes a point where blue-green algae blooms get out of hand, and it becomes unsafe to swim the shores of Madison's lakes. For whatever reason, this problem does not seem to plague Stewart Lake, nor a few other outlying bodies of water. When checking the Beach Water Quality website, Stewart Lake is basically never closed to swimming. In general, this is a good place to bring a family. There's a modern, all-metal and plastic playground uphill from the beach. Kids might also like the trails through the marsh, as a couple small bridges give a close view of the creek. A large, modern shelter is reservable for events, and the bathrooms are also decent. Nothing to write home about, but I figure it's worth mentioning. Away from the main parking lot, over by the dam, there's a few more parking spots along County Highway JG. These service a handicap-accessible fishing pier and a small boat ramp. Despite this, I might recommend travelers leave their bait and tackle at home, 
The County Parks website describes Stewart Lake as offering, quote, a challenge for trout and bass fishing. Anecdotally, the challenge might be finding any fish in this lake at all. Thankfully, wildlife viewing is a little better. The park is host to all kinds of birds, frogs. If you're lucky, you can spot a garter snake in the prairie. Winter offers even more opportunities like this. I once saw a red-tailed hawk sit in the middle of the frozen lake for about 10 minutes, just resting, soaking up the December sun. Stewart Lake is a park for all seasons, and now it's entering a season of renewal. If, after visiting Stewart Lake, you feel inspired to give back to the park, there's actually a way you can help coming up soon. This Saturday, September 10th, the County Parks Department is leading an effort to remove invasive species from the prairie. Work will go from 1 to 3 p.m., and interested volunteers can meet up at the end of Blueview Drive in Mount Horeb. More information can be found at the Dane County Parks website, and I'll link it in the online version of this story. While I'm on the topic of upcoming County Parks events, I should probably talk about the upcoming hearing. The Dane County Park system hasn't increased its fees in years, but it looks like it might finally be time. Next Wednesday at 4.45 p.m., the community is invited to participate in a hearing discussing all proposed fee changes for 2023. The big items are increases to permits for lake access, dog parks, and mountain biking, as well as the introduction of new military and veteran discounts. Anyone can attend, either in person at 210 Martin Luther King Jr. Boulevard in Madison, or over the phone or on Zoom. Like with the Stewart Lake Workday, I'll link more information on this in the digital version at wardfm.org. If you'd like to suggest a topic for Parks and Landmarks to cover, please send it my way at sean.bull at wardfm.org. Tell me about your favorite underrated spot outdoors, or whatever you feel is related. This segment's title is intentionally broad, so just go for it. I'd love to hear from you guys. Again, that's S-E-A-N dot B-U-L-L at W-O-R-T-F-M dot org. For W-O-R-T News, I'm Sean Bull. And it's time now for the most comprehensive weather report on the airwaves with W-O-R-T weather guru, Rob McClure. Well, while September has been uh, dry overall, at least through the first week, with just a few tenths of an inch of rain falling on Saturday, that does not mean that moisture has been entirely absent. The same surface high pressure that has kept us largely dry is also, since it has been mostly centered to our north over the past several days, kept winds, at least what uh, light winds we've seen, east and northeasterly, meaning we've had cool air from Canada slowly crossing the waters of the Great Lakes, which are about at their peak of seasonal warming currently before reaching us. And that uh, well-humidified air, well, first it socked us in with stratus and fog over this past weekend as it flowed in in the lowest few thousand feet of the atmosphere, while the warmer and drier air up above provided a stout capping inversion, preventing it mixing out. And then more lately, as we've managed to entrain a little more dry, low-level air into the area from the north, 
uh, for some clearing of skies and better daytime mixing. We've still seen that moisture turning up daily in the form of diurnal cumulus, which have been uh, fairly copious this past couple of days. And you can watch the uh, last of those dissipating uh, cumulus this evening if you want to have a look at the visible satellite image of uh, Wisconsin and northern Illinois that we have linked on the WORT weather webpage. Or, of course, you could also just look out your window, I suppose. Uh, What you can't see out your window, though, is uh, what's going on in the upper part of the uh, troposphere. But you can look at that if you have a glance at the water vapor image of North America that's also linked on the weather webpage. That will show you the upper trough that's been sitting above us these uh, past few rather cool days. Starting to move east now as it begins to be overtopped from the northwest by a resurgent uh, western continental upper ridge, uh, gaining strength out over the uh, plains and western states. That ridge, in turn, is being energized by strong southerly and southwesterly winds that are flowing northward into a gyre of low pressure swirling leftward over central British Columbia. A strengthening surface low with that system will lift from about southern Alberta northeastward towards lower Hudson's Bay between now and tomorrow evening, sending a cold front south and southeastward behind it, which will slow down as it spools further and further away from that departing low, and then almost stalling as it reaches about central Minnesota on Friday, and a secondary circulation begins to develop along the front further south. That's going to help sustain southwesterly winds uh, here into the weekend and rotate some additional moisture up against that boundary. But with surface and upper ridging holding pretty firm to the east here, a little in the way of precipitation looks to accompany this additional warm air advection on Saturday, at least until that boundary starts to sag into the area sometime late day or in the overnight period. Cold air advection down the plains to our west behind the frontal passage early on Sunday will then help the formation of a cutoff low along the front somewhere either near or perhaps just southwest of us, at least to judge from the longer range models currently. And that's likely to keep us cool and perhaps intermittently wet for an additional day or two as we go into next week, though there is less than perfect agreement on just how long that may be. The latter part of next week, though, does look to augur uh, rewarming, at least at this point. But back to this evening, uh, one last night of light winds and initially clear skies under surface high pressure promises to return atmospheric moisture earthward again as we cool towards the dew point, uh, likely resulting in one more round of uh, valley and uh, lowland fog and perhaps some low clouds by tomorrow morning. Temperatures will drop to the low 60s on light northerly winds backing nominally southwest by morning. Tomorrow should see redevelopment of cumulus and perhaps with some passing high clouds from time to time, but otherwise be clear, with southwesterly winds coming up to 5 to 10 miles per hour in the afternoon, taking temperatures into the low 80s. We'll clear out again and stay a bit warmer in the overnight in the low and mid-60s on southerly winds, which will stay up at 4 4 to 8 miles per hour. Friday, we'll likely see temperatures come up a bit more into the low and mid-80s on slightly stronger winds up at 8 to 12 miles per hour during the day. High clouds and perhaps some uh, thickening smoke from upstream fires in Montana and Idaho may cut into temperatures a little bit. We may start to actually see some of that smoke come through the area skies tomorrow in addition to Friday. Uh, High clouds are likely to increase further as we go into the overnight into Saturday and uh, showers start to approach across Minnesota and Iowa. Temperatures will hold in the uh, mid-60s on lighter southerly winds that night. 
And Saturday looks to start dry, and perhaps stays so through a good portion of the day, perhaps even into the overnight. Uh, Cloud cover will restrain temperatures to the upper 70s, I think, on Saturday, and light south-to-southwest winds, those will generally be under about 5 miles per hour. Precipitation becomes much likelier as we go overnight towards Sunday, with a low temperature around 60. And Sunday will be showery and uh, significantly cooler, with winds having veered north early in the day, probably before sunrise. Temperatures are likely to hold just in the mid or upper 60s on Sunday, uh, probably holding in that same range as we go into Monday, perhaps some with, a, with a, some additional showers at that time as well. Uh, it's currently 77 degrees down here at the station on Bedford Street. The dew point temperature is 64. Winds are out of the west at 6 miles per hour currently. Uh, just a couple of cumulus left up in what is mostly now a clear sky over the station, and the barometer's uh, falling slowly at 30.08 inches of mercury. It's now 6.49 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. We go now to 1966, when the school board voted to close Central High, declined to provide poor children with a hot lunch, and honored one of its own. Stu Levitan has the details on this week's Madison in the 60s. They melted to a dream. Madison in the 60s, the public schools, 1966. The vote to close Central. School district officials have been warning for years that the declining number of families downtown imperils the future of Central University High School. On February 7th, the school board bows to demographic and financial reality and some pressure from the vocational school, and votes 6-1 to one to close the school in June 1969. Designed by the prominent Minneapolis architect Cass Gilbert, the municipal Gothic structure at the corner of Wisconsin and West Johnson was the city's crowning educational achievement when it opened September 8, 1908. But no more. School board member Arthur Diney Mansfield makes the momentous motion. The veteran UW baseball coach argues that the building's needs are so great. A new library, modern labs and science rooms, a better gym, and the downtown demographics declining so steadily that the school is just not worth modernizing. And he notes that the board of the adjoining vocational school has been pressing for the classrooms and land for its growing program. Eastside attorney developer Albert McGinnis casts the lone vote against closing, precisely to protest that pressure. 
He says the vocational school doesn't understand how the new 11-county vocational school system will soon make this site obsolete for it as well, even with its proposed high-rise classroom building. I don't think the vocational system has examined its long-range needs enough, he says. Other members are more concerned about how the decision will affect students. I hope the students now there will continue, Superintendent Robert Gilberts tells the board, but we expect there will be a decline in enrollment. Since the board has vowed to keep Central functioning at its full academic level, he says, we will have to make a greater investment to assure continuance of the programs and waive the policies on minimum class size. Those 10th graders who choose not to start at Central in the fall will go to East High or the new James Madison Memorial High. Eastside Alder James Pfefferly, a candidate for the school board in the spring election, says the decision was, quote, railroaded through, but won't say by whom. Pfefferly notes that 21 Alders had called on the school board to hold off on closing Central and warns of, quote, drastic cuts in future school board budgets, which are under the city council's control. But voters apparently endorsed the school board's action. Pfefferly and Dr. Paul Canlin each campaigned vigorously against Mansfield and his fellow veteran incumbent, Security State Bank President Ray Sennett, over the decision, but lose in April 2-1. They don't even come close to carrying a precinct in Central High's attendance area, as voters re-elect Sennett for his seventh three-year term and Mansfield for his fourth. That same day, more good news for the vocational school as voters approve its $750,000 bond issue for a new building by better than 3 to 1. And the school day's calendar. February 7th, the same day the school board votes to close Central, it further angers the council by rejecting a special $2,000 appropriation the board had asked for to provide bus service for South Madison children attending Franklin Elementary School. The board objected to the council's requiring it to provide service to children beyond third grade as a condition for getting the money. Area Alder Babe Rohr also makes an impassioned plea for the board to provide a hot lunch program at Franklin, but a motion to do so is ruled out of order. March 3rd. Just hours after being acquitted on charges of indecent behavior with a 10-year-old boy, the principal Lapham School resigns. March 7th. Superintendent Gilberts grudgingly agrees to stop requesting photos of job applicants. Shortly after, the State Industrial Commissioner and Attorney General Bronson LaFollette say doing so is discriminatory and would tend to discourage non-white applicants. Gilbert says administrators never discriminated against applicants and that the photos were, quote, a valuable clue to help officials remember the thousand teacher applications they review each year for the 300 or so openings. The loss of pictures will create a handicap for both applicants and us, Gilbert says, but the use of pictures is apparently not acceptable, so we shall comply with the ruling. The school district has nine black staff members and several black interns. July 11th, the school board once again names a new elementary school after its incumbent president, this time Dr. Ray Hegel, namesake for the innovative round school on the far west side. Eagle, a dentist, has been on the board since 1934 and its president since the death last July of the first such honoree, Glenn Stevens. 
The board also names the two new elementary schools after individuals it declined to honor in 1965 when naming the Far West High School now known as James Madison Memorial. On the Far East side, the school is named after the late President Kennedy. On the Far West side, after naturalist and UW dropout John Muir. And there will be many more schools to name as voters in November approve a $26.5 million bond issue to fund a building program to handle the 6,000 new pupils expected to enter the school system over the next five years. The edifice complex includes a new high school on the Far East Side, 12 new elementary schools, five new junior highs, and numerous additions. But in a worrisome sign for future expansion, the 2-to-1 margin approving the referendum is down substantially from the 3-to-1 margin for the $9.3 million referendum in 1962. As the 66-67 school year starts, Madison still has a handful of teacher vacancies and only about 50 substitutes on call. It usually has five times as many substitutes. That's likely due to a salary schedule that is $400 to $500 below that of other Midwestern school systems, and competition from such popular federal programs as Project Head Start and Volunteers in Service to America. Despite the low pay, Madison has the highest school tax rate of any major city in Wisconsin. While city and county taxes have decreased steadily since 1961, the tax levy for the schools has increased by an even larger margin. And there's no immediate relief in sight. Next year's school budget calls for an additional 197 teachers and staff to handle the 1,500 new pupils. And that's this week's Madison in the 60s. For your award-winning, school-bill-ringing, listener-supported WRT News team... I'm Stu Levitan. And that does it for our show this evening. Thanks for listening to WORT's Live Local News at 6. Our headline writer this evening was David Ahrens. Our reporter was Mike Mullen of the Wisconsin News Connection. Special thanks to feature contributors Sean Bull and Stu Levitan. Chuck Kademan is our on-air engineer this evening, and Nate Weggie helped produce the newscast. Shelley Pittman is the news director at WORT, and I'm your host, Robert McClure. And I'm your host, Vicki Iden. Stay up to date with the WORT Local News Podcast. Subscribe on iTunes Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. Up next is Query followed by This Way Out. Have a good night.